In this first episode of our podcast, we're joined by a very special guest and a longtime friend, Dr. Ray Dianandan. Ray is a Canadian epidemiologist, assistant director, and associate professor at the University of Ottawa. He has taken a special interest in the COVID-19 pandemic and has appeared on a number of news outlets talking about the epidemiology of the disease and how we can best manage it. Hope you enjoy it. So welcome, Ray. Uh, thanks for joining us and um, welcome to our very first podcast here at Impact Medicom. I'm really honored that you'll be the first guest. So um, <laughs> so I know that you've taken a special interest in the COVID pandemic and spent countless hours researching and discussing its epidemiology. Uh, what got you into this passion? Where did it start from? Well, you have to understand first that I'm not an infectious disease researcher. I'm a global health population epidemiologist, which makes me a bit of a generalist. And uh, I'm on parental leave right now as of July. And as well as past year, I have been in an administrative role. I've been the assistant director of our school, which means that my research has been really scaled back this past year. Having said all that, when the pandemic started, even before it was declared a pandemic back in February or so, when things started getting serious, most people didn't realize what was going on. Oh, we got to close some things because there's a disease around and maybe we'll be back to work in a couple of weeks or whatever. And that's when the um, Neil Ferguson Imperial College report was released. I don't know if um, your viewers are familiar with this report, but this is the report that started much of the seriousness. And the report really put forth a, um, a model for how they thought the UK was going to experience this disease, the overrun healthcare system, the large number of deaths, et cetera. It has since been mocked a lot by some in the political sector for having been too dire. I think it was actually fairly accurate in many ways. And uh, it, it provided a good warning for what could happen if we didn't take this seriously. So I, I took the time to do the math myself for Canada. And I realized, oh my goodness, this is going to last months, if not years. And it may never go away if certain things happen. And as I mentioned, my, uh, my girlfriend is pregnant and we're due in the next couple of months. And I have elderly parents. And it occurred to me, it is possible that my parents might die never having seen their grandchild, right? Because we might be in lockdown for that long and they might get this disease and die. And this depressed me so much. I lay in the fetal position thinking, I'm going to have to raise my son in isolation, you know, <laughs> for months, if not years. Um, now, this sounds a little, you know, a bit of an overreaction back then, but this is what the data was saying to me at the time. And so, um, and I'm a joyful, optimistic guy. My girlfriend found me on the floor. What's going on? I, said, I, just, I just realized what's happening here. And so I made a decision that uh, one day my son is going to ask me, Dad, you're a, you're a senior epidemiologist. What did you do to help out in the great pandemic of 2020? And I realized my role, uh, to the extent that I have a role, is I, I'm a fairly good talker and a fairly good writer, and I think I'm good at, at interpreting some technical things for non-technical people. So I decided that my role is going to be in interpreting the data for the layperson and for media, and that's what I've been doing. And that has since evolved into some other activities around some more you know, actual you know, primary data collection. Now, having said all that, I am sensitive to an important aspect of this, and that is expertise creep. I'm not an economist, I'm not a policy advisor, um, you know, I'm not a mental health expert, even though I have done research and all those things. Um, 
So I'm careful not to lend the imprimatur of my PhD in status to giving advice in those elements. It's important right now in this emergency that everyone keep to their professional lanes. And I'm fond of saying I don't get my economic forecasts from physicians. I don't get my epidemiological models from economists. We should all contribute where we can, but not overstep. That's my official statement. <laughs> That's great, Ray. And it's such an amazing story about how you came to this and, uh, and what a crazy and amazing time for you on this journey, for sure. Uh, so, so yeah, so I, I, I did want to get into uh, some discussion around specifically sports, because I, I think this is something that's quite difficult as we get into the colder weather. You know, how are we going to handle, you know, exercising and being social, you know, while we were managing with being outside in the past? So what are your thoughts on that? First, it's important to think about how infectious diseases are transmitted in general. And there are a variety of pathways. The first is direct physical contact, like sexual contact, HIV AIDS. We get that from sexual contact, as everybody understands now. Then there's a vector transmission. Malaria is a vector transmitted disease. A mosquito, the vector, bites an infected person uh, and then transfers the infection to a non-infected person by biting that individual. Then there is a droplet transmission. That's when the stuff out of my lungs comes out wrapped in little bits of mucus and it lands at a certain distance away from me, probably less than two meters. And it lands on someone's face and makes its way into their mucous membranes and they get infected that way. Then there's aerosol transmission. And aerosols are smaller than droplets and they float around in the air a bit longer, maybe hours or days. And you could walk through a cloud of aerosols and inhale a bunch and get infected that way. Then there's fomite transmission. That's when you touch a surface. And maybe I've coughed on my hand and I touch a doorknob and somebody else touches the same doorknob and licks their hand for some reason and get infected that way. So with this disease, with COVID-19, we think the most common mechanism of transmission is through droplets. And droplets, as I mentioned, tend to fall to the ground within a certain distance. Now, some research done back in the 1930s around influenza droplets suggests that within one meter, about 90% of droplets tend to fall to the ground. So if you're, if you're one meter away from somebody, you're probably safe most of the time. If you're two meters away, about 99% of the droplets fall. Don't quote me on those exact numbers. It's that scale. And every meter after that, uh, your risk devolves by another 50%. So distance is important here. It's also why different countries have different distances. Like Denmark has one meter. China's got one meter. France has, I think, 1.5 meters. We've got two meters. Whatever. So... So droplet transmission is the most important mechanism of transmission for this disease. Aerosol, we are increasingly understanding, is the second most important and becoming the most important because we're all wearing masks and distancing, right? And distancing doesn't really protect you from aerosol transmission. So if you're inside with someone who's breathing or coughing or sneezing up a storm, uh, those bits are going to float about and you're going to walk through a cloud of them and get infected that way. We don't think that fomite transmission is a big deal. Originally, we thought it was. Uh, so we have people, you know, uh, washing their groceries and, and wiping their hands all the time, washing their hands all the time. It probably does happen, but not nearly as commonly as the other two. So I don't really worry about fomite transmission that much, even though my girlfriend still wipes down her Amazon boxes before they're brought into the house. It's a point of contention in my house. <laughs> <laughs> and without with sexual contact and, and vector stuff, that's not a thing at all. So having said that, we're only really worried about um, droplets, droplets, and aerosol, and limitedly fomite. What does that mean for sports? 
It means that if you're indoors, you're a much higher risk. So if you're in a gym, um, it's an indoor setting. Uh, unless the windows are really open and you've got a really great cross breeze and the ceilings are really high and you've got like a HEPA filter installed, um, over the course of thousands of people going through that facility, the the risk of aerosol transmission ratchets up, you know, somewhat. And already in Ontario, where we live, we've seen a few uh, gym-based outbreaks. I think Waterloo had one, Toronto had one. So it is happening. Um, if you're outside, the risk of aerosol transmission becomes near to zero because it's the, the dilution effect alone um, makes it that if you were to inhale uh, a particle, aerosol particle, it would be so few of them that you will get an infectious dose. And, um, you know, the crosswinds just take them away. Um, but if you're outside, it's important then to stay apart from each other because that's when the droplet transmission comes into play. So how far apart? One to two meters. Yeah. Um, and then the fomite thing comes into play around, you know, how if you're going to be wrestling with someone or licking each other's faces and things like that, I'm not, I'm not sure what kind of sport I'm describing here, but I'm, yeah. <laughs> the world's a complicated place. <laughs> um, <You> never know. <laughs> that becomes an issue. So the short answer, and we can go into the details of what this means, but the short answer is be outside, be at a distance, don't touch each other. What about, what does that mean for some minimal contact sports, like for example, soccer, where there's some tackling involved or basketball and so on? Yeah. Like, as I mentioned, fomite uh, surface touch transmission is not a big deal. The risk here is, does it bring you face to face so that droplet transmission can take place? So if you are tackling someone, do it not looking at each other, right? Or like um, if you are going to look at each other, make it a really fast thing uh, and you're probably fine. So there's a formula to consider. It's duration multiplied by intensity of exposure. So the intensity of exposure really is how close you are to the person. And, um, you know, are you, are you huffing and puffing in their face? And the duration, of course, is how long that is happening. So if you are not that close to a person, let's say you're face-to-face one meter apart, but you're at that position for several hours, that's a problem. If you are really close to each other, but for a split second, that's not a problem. So duration multiplied by intensity. Unfortunately, I I don't know of the exact thresholds for measuring that formula, but we play it by by ear that way. So for soccer, uh, if you tackle someone, just don't be in their face. You know, and it's fine. You can grab them by the ankles. I, I don't play soccer, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, for a sports, happen. it can't happen, right? So if you're smashing your knees together or something, that, that's okay. And I understand soccer, too. At some point, you're going to be face-to-face with kickoffs and things like that. But if you're at a distance doing so, and it's for a very short duration, like seconds, I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. Great. What about things like sweat? I mean, you know, we know, obviously, if you're, you're exercising, you're sweating. Uh, is there any risk to other people around you with that? So, um, no. And here's the reason. We, we don't think there are, there's virus in sweat naturally. So if it's coming out of your sweat glands, mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's ever detected, you know, viral particles, COVID viral particles in, in sweat. And if it were to be that way, like for sweat to actually be a transmission medium, Really, it would have to have the virus wrapped in mucus from your snot getting mingled in with the sweat. sweat. Like you blow your nose on your underarm or something, and that, you know, <laughs> that delicious concoction of fluids is now the, um, the, the medium of transmission. However, having said that, there is something about sweat that makes it less likely to transmit. Sweat has antimicrobial properties. 
right? And, and I know a virus is not a bacterium, but it has properties that tend to neutralize pathogens. So I, I'd be much more comfortable, you know, being in contact with someone's sweat than I would with their blood or their mucus, you know, with their mm -hmm. saliva, uh, which is ironic. So maybe we're going to invent a whole new, whole new mechanism <laughs> or mode of intimacy of sweat transfer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I got an email from, some, from someone complaining that their, their kid's school had banned, um, what's that game called? A soccer foot baseball, you know, with a kickball thing where you they use a ball, a kicking ball instead of a, a baseball, you know? Oh yeah. I, I've heard of, I've heard about yeah. it, but uh, yeah, I can't remember the name of it, but I, it's quite popular now. Right? Yeah. I don't know. So they yeah. banned it because the kids would be touching the same ball and this drove me crazy. Huh? Like that's oh, a perfect no. sport. It's a perfect sport to play. Huh. You're at a distance. You're not touching each other. Yeah. You're outside and the ball, like right, you're probably where you're kicking it with your shoes, first of all. And if you are uh -huh. touching it, it's all covered in dirt and muck anyway. And if you're that concerned, just wash your hands before you touch your face. Uh, I think yeah. the um, the probability of transmission via kickball is vanishingly small. Um, of course, watch tomorrow we'll find a case where it happens, and I won't play any idiot. But, <laughs> but based on data today, it's vanishingly small. And, and um, I'm fond of saying that public health is the art of the possible. Okay. What is it possible to contain here? What is it possible to do? Kids need exercise. Kids need socialization. This is a possible thing to do kickball is it possible that you get transmission that way yeah but vanishingly small so you know this is where we, we play the uh, the probability and say it's, i would err on the side of letting it happen um also there's a there's a movement among some epidemiologists to really advocate for outdoor exercise right now change the culture you know like yeah. let's go to the park let's run around the park let's let's throw a ball around let's play frisbee whatever it is Maybe this is our chance to actually make fundamental change in the way we think about fitness, that it shouldn't have to be a thing we schedule to go to a facility and play, pay 50 bucks a month. Um, I know the gym owner is going to be mad at me for saying this. Maybe it should be part of our lifestyle where we go with our families and friends to a park and just run around. You know, and we should do it now before the winter is upon us. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And also that social element that you don't necessarily get if you're going by yourself to a gym, which uh, I think would be very helpful right now to have the social interaction as well. Mm -hmm. Not just that, but I mean, I, I love the gym. I freaking love my gym. And, you know, it's my escape for my family. <laughs> They're listening here. They want to hear that. But, um, you know, put on my podcast and I, I look at the pretty girls and I do my thing and, you know, and I get to show off my, my scrawny little muscles. But there, there is... There is additional mental health benefit, I think, I think, again, not being an expert on this, to being outside in the sunlight, yes. fresh air, seeing nature. You know, so if I run in the park, I feel much better than if I run the treadmill. Makes a lot of sense, yeah. What are your thoughts on, on masks? Because this is something that I, I've been quite confused about is can you, you know, should you wear a mask outside if you're playing yeah. a team sport? That's an interesting question. So let's back up and explain why we advocate for masks in the first place. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of confusion about this. And it's amazing to me that people haven't, you know, mm -hmm. really absorbed it yet. So the mantra is my mask protects you and your mask protects me because a mm -hmm. mask is not personal protective equipment. It's not meant to filter out the virus. It's not what it's meant to do at all. What it's meant to do is slow the air leaving my mouth. It's a windbreak. And if the, if the air leaving my mouth is a bit slower, then the distance droplets can travel gets diminished. I mentioned earlier that droplets travel 
one, two meters before falling to the ground. With a mask, they travel a few centimeters before falling to the ground. Now, suddenly, mm -hmm. you don't have to be two meters away from me. You can be, I don't know, a, a, few, a few feet away from that, the same thing. Uh, you know, one or two feet away from me and mm -hmm. you get the same effect. So that's why I wear a mask. Outside, you don't really need a mask mm -hmm. because of the crosswinds and the fact that I'm not going to be face-to-face -face with people, probably. The exception, of course, is if I am going to be like in a public square, face-to-face, -face, having lunch with someone for a long period of time, and again, duration times intensity comes into play, and, and over as every hour passes, it becomes higher likelihood that a droplet will leave my mouth and end up on this other person's face. Italy recently made outdoor mass mandatory, I think, if I'm not wrong about that. I've been asked about mm -hmm. that in media all week. And, um, I, and their, their motivation is complicated. I think their motivation is to understand first that their culture is different from ours. They spend more time outside public squares, you know, in, in crowded cafes. And also there's a social signaling element. So you, people feel safer if they see masks around and they're more likely to wear a mask more commonly. So you normalize it and you create a sense of calm. Now to wear a mask while working out outside. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's wise to wear a mask when working out in general. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't see a point of it, especially if you're alone doing it. Um, I mean, there is a workout strategy. Uh, some some high-performance athletes advocate for these breathing restriction devices to strengthen mm. their intercostal muscles. I, I, the evidence around that I'm not familiar with, but okay. And a mask serves a similar purpose. It makes your lungs work harder and maybe gives you greater lung strength. I don't know. But in terms of viral transmission, I, I don't see a utility in wearing a mask when exercising outside unless you are going to be face to face with someone for an extended period of time. Hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. And do you think that there's any harm of wearing a mask uh, in, uh, you know, in terms of uh, lack of oxygen and that sort of thing? Well, again, that's, uh, I don't want to overstep my expertise. That's a hmm. respirology question, but the data I've seen suggests, no, there's no harm in it at all. Yeah. Um, but, as, but some people, I mean, like I see joggers with masks all the time mm -hmm. and uh, they seem perfectly comfortable. Um, and again, you can get a you can get a, a lesser quality mask with a little more breathing potential that still slows the airflow sufficiently. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it comes down to a, a personal choice because the science really is not very instructive on this matter. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think there is harm in it unless you feel that you are suffocating when wearing it and exercising. Mm -hmm. In which case, yeah. take it off and keep your distance. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. Um, so it, just going back to the indoor uh, exercise discussion, so, you know, things like, for example, dance studios and so on, where they've sort of taped off these areas for each child to kind of stand in, but they don't necessarily have a really well ventilated space. What are your, your thoughts on that? Originally, I thought that would be sufficient, mm -hmm. but increasingly we're finding the aerosol transmission is a bigger deal than we first mm -hmm. expected. And now we have, you know, data suggesting that, the dominant strain in the Western world is in fact a more infectious strain hmm. of this virus and, um, and possibly better aerosolized. So unfortunately, I don't think these distancing endeavors are going to be sufficient in the long run hmm. because the, it's, also, it's, a, it's a numbers game too, right? So the more commonly it happens, the more opportunity for aerosol spread to happen. And it's only a matter of time before you get uh, an outbreak and possibly a super spreading event. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's disappointing, but it sounds like really outdoors is the way to go. Um, or really good ventilation, like a cross yeah. breeze, windows open, 
invest heavily mm -hmm. in air purifiers and HEPA filters. Mm -hmm. Again, the, the data is not there for the air purifiers, but it's not rocket science. It stands to reason mm -hmm. that it should work. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And, you know, I think it's worth a shot. Yeah. So, so what would be your sort of just top, you know, examples of exercise that combine social elements to them, uh, but that are safer? Oh, you froze there. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry. I was just asking your, what are your thoughts on which exercises would be the safest to choose? Safest? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Obviously, running outside is the absolute safest thing to do. You're alone. You're not, in, no one's in front of you breathing in your exhaled goodness. Um, uh, or a walk is great. Like, for me right now, I just walk the dog every day for like a long time. That gets me what I need. <laughs> But more people, a lot of people need more intense activities and social activities. I think soccer is great. You know, it's social. Um, for the most part, I think you're keeping your distance for the most part. Mm -hmm. I think baseball is great too, despite the fact you're touching common things. And mm -hmm. yeah, if someone runs into you, if you're, if you're a first baseman and someone runs into you, that's not cool. But you know, you just, if you're respectful and you're, you're not playing major league baseball level baseball, you're playing like neighborhood level, you can probably do it quite safely. Team sports like that outdoors are great. Tennis is probably the perfect sport. Tennis mm. is perfect. You're, look, how far, you're an entire court apart from each other. You're not touching <laughs> any common surfaces. Um, right. It's fantastic. I, I'm a big squash player, as you know, and I miss squash a lot. I, I, don't, I, I suspect squash is probably safe because of hmm. the big room and the oh, fact really? that okay. the high ceilings. Um, but I got to give that some more thought, I'm, you know, I have to think about what the ventilation quality is and the extent to which you run into each other. I don't think we run into each other a lot and it does depend on the American court versus the European court. Mm -hmm. Um, weightlifting is interesting because, um, you, you need, you need stuff, you need equipment mm -hmm. and it's possible to do it safely in a gym if you control the number of people in there any given time and the room is large enough and you wear a mask. Mm -hmm. And wearing a mask while weightlifting is fine because you're probably not exerting yourself aerobically. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, hmm. These are difficult questions. Like I'm guessing at this point because the data is not there and this is complicated and controversial. Today in Ottawa, the mayor of Ottawa was decrying the province for closing uh, gyms saying, where is the data? Show me the data. Well, we don't have the data. What we do know is that we have some gym outbreaks and that's yeah. compelling evidence. Um, it's not... In times of public health emergency, the threshold for the quality of evidence you need to act drops. Mm -hmm. This is a tough one for some doctors to get through their, their minds. They're stuck in the randomized control trial paradigm. Mm -hmm. You know, like if when deciding whether or not to prescribe a drug, you can wait for six or seven randomized control trials and a systematic review and a panel of experts mm -hmm. to assess whether or not the benefits outweigh the, um, the harms. But when it comes to preventing an explosive catastrophe that's at our doorstep, you can't wait for perfect evidence. You act on the precautionary principle. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, I'm on my, on my, my soapbox there. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's true. It's true. It's a good way to think about it because, you know, we're, we don't have the time to do the randomized control trials, I'm the, sure. The right analogy for the COVID evidence mm -hmm. crisis is climate change. Mm. Right? If you wait for complete certainty and everyone's on board, it's too late. The apocalypse is here. But there is sufficient evidence for climate change that, you know, if we enact these changes, we can pretend, 
prevent an apocalyptic scenario. And if we were wrong, then, oh, hey, you got rid of fossil fuels. Yeah, great. Right. <laughs> you know, same with, yeah. uh, with COVID here. Like, um, the price of acting early if we're wrong is that you close some businesses and people do suffer. You know? That's why it's important that the government uh, compensate those individuals so they don't suffer unduly. Um, mm-hmm. But if we were right, then we prevented a lot of suffering. So I think it's important to err on the side of precaution. No. And not everyone agrees with this. This is what I'm advocating. Yes. Well, no, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense and uh, definitely wise words and thoughts for sure. So, uh, yeah, well, this has been really, uh, really in, in for, informational. Is there anything else that you want to add um, before we wrap up? Ray, or? Yes. As I say yes. all the time is when this is all over, no <laughs> one's going to thank us. No one's going to thank public health people or epidemiologists. We're going to lose yeah. out. Yeah. No matter what happens. And I want, I want to put this on a record. So back to this years from now, it was like, you bloody epidemiologist. All right. So if we do everything right um, and we prevent the catastrophe, people will say we overreacted. If we do everything wrong and the catastrophe happens, people will say we're useless. Either way, we lose. So you got to understand that I'm getting nothing out of this except guaranteed future pain. Oh, no. <laughs> I hope that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, well, definitely, I appreciate you, Ray. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and and thanks so much for being the first guest, which is really my pleasure. Cool. I look so, forward to the additional episodes. For sure. Is there any um, place that people can contact oh. you if they want to harass you? Or <laughs> yeah. By the way, I get a lot of harassment already. Um, oh, my, my website is mylastname.com. So dionandon.com, D-E-O-N-A-N-D-A-N.com. Or Google brown guy who looks like Russell Peters, but who isn't Russell <laughs> That's great, Ray. Well, thank you so much for your time and really appreciate it. So yeah, talk thank to you. you soon. Yeah, thanks.